Welcome to Voices of the Valley, a series interviewing growers, entrepreneurs, educators, and technologists who are inventing new solutions for today's and tomorrow's challenges on the farm. Brought to you today by the Western Growers Association, supporting growers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com. Now here's your Voices of the Valley host, Director of Western Growers Center for Innovation and Technology, Dennis Donahue. Welcome back to another edition of Voices of the Valley. This is Dennis Donahue, the Director of the Western Growers Center of Innovation and Technology, headquartered in Salinas, California, but for the entire Western Growers Network. And uh, as always, uh, joined by my uh, good friend and partner, Candace Wilson. Candace, good to see you. Nice to see you too. How are you today? I'm doing well. And uh, we've got a uh, extra special guest. I don't say that because he's a colleague and, uh, and a great personal friend. We're being joined today by Walt Duflop, who is the, uh, I don't think we can say new anymore. I'm not even sure we can say relatively new. I think you've been broke in pretty good and you're a real veteran already. Uh, you're certainly a veteran of the innovation wars. So I want to welcome uh, Walt Duflop, who is the uh, vice president of innovation for Western Growers, uh, to join us today and talk a little bit about your background and a really exciting project that is appropriately gathering global attention. So Walt, welcome. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Candace. Great to be here. I think you're right. The freshness state uh, probably cracked the seal on that one by now. Yeah, yeah. We can't keep saying Grizzle, new. Grizzle veteran. There you go. So anyway, it's, it's terrific to have you. And uh, Candace and I have been looking forward to this conversation for a variety of reasons. But why don't we do what we typically do is just have our guests talk a little bit about their background and uh, kind of your career evolution. Uh, you know, your involvement with ag tech is uh, particularly unique. So uh, talk a little bit about your background and how you ended up uh, where you are and what your thoughts are about innovation uh, on a go-forward basis. It's true. I was ag and tech before we made it into one word, Dennis. So I grew up on a fifth-generation family farm about an hour below where you are in Salinas, down in Monterey County, South Monterey County, as we say. And, and the genesis of the ranch is interesting. The great-great-grandfather, Meyer Brandenstein, he of MJB Coffee fame, he was running a cattle operation in Potrero Hill in San Francisco, and he decided, you know what? These city folk don't like cattle much. I should really graze them somewhere else. So the ranch started when he looked on a map and he said, you know, this railroad line's going south. Maybe I'll buy some land in Monterey County that graze some of these cattle before I put them in market. So 150 years later, we are sitting on a couple thousand acres of leafy greens, 1,400 acres of wine grapes, and a 300-head cow-calf operation down in South Monterey County. So it's been an interesting ride. And much of the irrigated ground has been put into play the last couple of decades by my mom, uh, her generation, and then our generation, my sisters and I. It's been fun to watch that grow up down in Monterey County. Meanwhile, as they say, after getting a degree at Cal Poly and a law degree at Santa Clara, I've been up in Silicon Valley, the other valley. 25 years, a bunch of startups. eBay is the one everyone's heard of. It did well, fun in e-commerce early days, and three others that got uh, acquired not in ag tech. And then last couple of years, I spent time working with you from the SVG Thrive side, and then working with you again on the Western Grower side as the uh, VP of innovation. And the focus there is really two things, harvest automation and food safety. Although I'm sure as we'll cover the growing topic of next-gen ag workers to run all that fancy equipment will make its way into the conversation. Well, I think you're right. Uh, you know, that's a good self-intro. I was ag tech before there was ag tech. So uh, you embody what we're after of, you know, how do we bring those two worlds together? In fact, you know, you and I were both participating uh, with Thrive and what, and uh, their Canadian cohort, their new group. And it was really interesting to note as we, you know, hopefully provided either information, maybe a little advice, shared experience, you know, that idea of co-development. And you, you really just have to bring those two worlds together if there's going to be product development and adoption. So that's a, a terrific background. Yeah, that, no, thanks, Dennis. And as I, as I shared with the group after you had them, I said, you know, 
I see a lot of ag tech startups that are not short on business and finance and startup expertise, but I do see a few ag tech startups that miss the ag part. And so part of today's discussion was how do you find the ag part when you're a co-founder team that's largely engineering? And so we uh, talked about a little of that, but yeah, both words matter. Ag matters and tech matters or ag tech's going to be tough for you to create stuff. Well, one of the things I've observed before Candace jumps in is you know, as a, as a result of that background, I, I mean, you've really developed a pretty distinct and clear point of view about the best way to get those worlds together, that it needs to be more specific, more focused, and both parties need to be ready for each other and so they can manage expectations and that type of thing. So talk a little bit about, uh, you know, your philosophy. You know, you think it's absolutely critical to be familiar with the grower economics. You know, I think you have really placed a premium on uh, case studies, that type of thing. And likewise, I think growers need to understand what are technology companies dealing with in terms of their accountability to their funders and that sort of thing. So talk a little bit about the philosophy that you've developed and really tried to bring to bear and, and kind of introduce into the ag tech world. And I think clearly to the benefit of everybody. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Dennis. It is a pretty cool, clear philosophy from where my experience has come. And, and it is this, it is, look, startups have to come to where the growers are, meet them where their problem is, right? And startups need to then come to the investors and help them understand where the growers are and where their solutions evolving to meet the needs. And that's why I see so many ag tech startups where they just haven't been able to get that next financing tranche in some cases because they missed one of those two. Either you miss the grower side of it, where their pain is, what the economics are, or you miss the ability to spin that into a narrative that the investors can see growth to support the investment in. And those two things are equally critical. So as I tell the startups, someone needs to own the business, the business model and all the financial goals so that the board's on, on, on board and will keep writing investor checks. And someone needs to understand the grower at a very detailed level, right? So if I'm building a weeding robot, I need to understand exactly what that grower is doing for weeding. How are they paying for it? Who's paying for it? How often they're doing it? Why they need to do it? What it hits their income statement at? And then what you're working against. And if you don't do that, you might inadvertently build a weeding robot that costs way too much money. And the investors looking at that going, well, nobody's buying that. I don't care how good a weeding robot it is. And that's one of the things we're hoping to avoid with all the toolkits and platform stuff that we're building in Western Growers is Help the startup understand that the $800,000 weeding robot is probably not going to hit the mark. We need it a little cheaper and we need it priced right and serviced right. Candace, you may recall, I do vividly, May 1, 2019, we got together in Irvine and you were in the room and we kicked around an idea. And in fact, you really were the inspiration for how we put some structure to this. You know, a lot of what Walt's talking about, we've seen folks begin to figure out the market's beginning to move, but, you know, we had a particularly, and still have a particularly difficult issue around uh, field harvest automation that we felt it needed to go faster. And so we kind of came up with a unique approach to get at that. Do you remember that day? I very much remember that day in Irvine. Well, and I remember how you took charge after we ran around the room and they're like, okay, <laughs> where's this going to go? And uh, because you're very well organized and like details and structure, I still remember you grabbing, you know, the big white pad and said, all right, what are we doing here? And, Give me the uh, pen. What are we going to do? <laughs> that's right. So it's interesting to see how that's evolved, but I'll let you kind of jump in with, you know, that was the launch of a pretty interesting and important project. No, it's such a good point too. You know, we started in a room in Irvine, like you say, 
And then the conversation expanded to all different global groups. And then Walt came on and he brought his magic wand. And before we knew it, we were into Larry making a grand announcement, you know, to the world about what we were going to do and how we were going to bring people together for the automation initiative. And Walt, maybe can you give us an update about how that journey has been and where we are today, what's exciting you and just kind of what you think the next steps are? Yeah, I know. Be happy to. And it, it, it indeed, it has been, think of that May of 19, it's now March of 22. So we're three years into that grand experiment. And thanks to the efforts by the folks well before I got there, I think we were on a great flight plan already. And it's worth remembering because you guys know this. When we launched into Larry, it was the week of World Ag Expo 2021. But of course, World Ag Expo in 2021 did not happen. And the only two groups of people there were our small handpicked crew of merrymakers, and the COVID testing people. <laughs> so That's right. No 100,000 people in Tulare, just Western growers, our partners, and a bunch of people on the opposite side of the property. We're like, no, no, you guys go over there. And, and, and we were test. barely even together too. Do you remember? We All of our chairs were yep. six feet apart. We were waving to each other from across the room. So certainly yeah. not a typical egg. Yes. <laughs> no, we had the Corteva room all to ourselves, all 35 or so of us. Yep. That's exactly right. Most people think of Corteva as a building. It was our it was our room that day. Exactly right. And it was cold. <laughs> a little different than this year. Well, and what was so impressive it was good about, to have the expo back this year. Yeah, no, it was. What was impressive about that day also, though, was uh, we beamed in folks from, I think, seven different countries to participate in the launch. So, you know, to Candace's point, what started in a room and kind of basically said, okay, how do we work together and what's really going on here? We're getting stuff off the ground out of a tree or clipped from a vine and, you know, to see how... You know, you pulled it all together and with that launch. And so you make reference to Tulare. We had the place to ourselves to just recently, a year later, and big crowds are back. Not quite where we like them, but big crowds were back. And you made some pretty important announcements and, and talked about your progress. Yeah, no, it's been a, a really good year, a really busy year in a good way. And I think this year in Tulare, we launched the Harvest Report. That was one of the big initiatives that we set up was, hey, let's tell everyone how we're doing. And less from a startups are out there and fundraising and adding team members. And that's all important. And the startups have to do that and have to get to scale. But really, hey, how are we doing for the industry, right? Our robots and harvest robots specifically, although we're now caring about other types of robots that help the harvest robots, are they able to make a dent in that gap that we know is there between the labor we have or don't have and the labor we need? So the report really plants a flag in the ground and says, all right, here's where we're at snapshot end of 2021. And every year we'll go back and we'll update, all right, which crops are getting harvested and what level and which startups are doing the work and which innovators are doing the work. So the report is really a nice way to focus the industry and hopefully focus the press with us on this is one of the top three problems. This is labor and labor for specialty crops is the biggest rock. And we're going to go out with a report every year that says, here's our progress. We told you last year where we were. We're going to tell you this year where we were. And really just get the whole industry focused on labor because it remains the challenge that, I mean, you and I hear from the growers about the most when we're out there doing our road trips. I mean, we talk to a lot of growers and it is still the number one problem. So this report gets everyone focused on it. And then the tech stack, the Lego blocks, as we call them for the startups, that's going to allow them to build some stuff quicker. We've made some good progress on that. And then the commercialization help for the innovators that are overseas. Europe, Australia, as you said, seven countries worth of startups. Let's help them break into the U.S. specialty crop market, which has its unique nuances, but is conquerable. And we think we can help folks conquer it a little bit more effectively with some help from Western growers. I just would like to hear some of like the milestones or wins, Walt, that you're something, you know, since we were into Larry, what do you feel most proud about? What is continuing to kind of fuel your energy and keep you optimistic? You know, it's a great question, Candace. I do, I do see some progress. I'll be honest. 
the progress on the harvest front remains hard, but the progress in supporting areas is getting evident. And so we've made a lot of progress, I think, in areas like mechanized weeding robots and thinning robots where you can do stuff to make harvesting easier for the robots. So that area has been good progress. Harvest assist with things like the platforms people can stand on and get the harvest easier or platforms like the burrow where you can run the food back to the truck. I think harvest assist is making some good progress. So you see automation progress around harvest and helping in the fields, but the actual harvest robots still remain a little bit tough to solve. And that came out in the report, right? We definitely heard from the startups that scaling and technical complexity are both really big challenges. Getting bigger requires you to get revenue and get into market. And yet the technical complexity of replacing, in some cases, not, well, not, I mean, of doing the work of picking a fruit or picking a vegetable with the robot, doing everything that a human eye and hand can do in tandem working together <laughs> proves to be really hard. And so harvest, we don't see as much progress as we'd like. And I guess one thing that's both cautious and optimism is when you look at the startups that are in the space, the fact that 75% of the startups that we talked to for this report were still pre-A round meaning they had friends and family, seed money, bootstrap capital of their, out of their own bank account. But three quarters of the folks that are doing the work in this initiative do not have venture capital money yet. That's how early the stage is. So I still feel like we have miles to go, but I do feel like the startups are making material progress. And I do feel like we are forcing them to get very business and finance focused and get off the tech and tell the story. Because the one thing that we continue to see is one third of the challenge with the harvest robot space is the actual robot. We can all, a lot of them can build robots that can do the work. Two thirds of it is getting it to the field with the right economics and the right partners so that the grower is confident you'll be there when needed. And that if it breaks down on a Saturday afternoon, they will see somebody with a hammer or something that can help them before Tuesday. Talk a little bit about, you know, the way you broke it down, you know, the report that it was important to begin to set some baselines. Where are we really? I mean, I think there's broad agreement that to your point, you know, if you look at thinning and weeding in terms of financing, in terms of trials, in terms of co-development, you know, everything could go faster, but I think that's on track, let's say. But the harvest piece has been particularly tough. And, uh, you know, what are we finding out in terms of how's progress likely to be financed? How have people reacted to essentially the introduction of a tech stack concept, which as a layperson, is the, the hardware equivalent of, uh, you know, DOS for, for operating systems, because typically people want to, you know, every aspect to be proprietary. But from a grower standpoint, if that adds cost and slows development down, and, you know, the original impetus for this project was, hey, this is a race against time now. We just simply need to go faster. How, how have people reacted to your strategy? Well, I think the big reaction has been very positive to what you just mentioned, Dennis, that technology stack, that platform, right? So where we decided we had to make a big pivot in the last year was we're revolving from a model of helping individual startups in an accelerator model where you invest in a company, you support the company, you help them grow, and then hopefully your investment gets more valuable over time. We've really taken the exact opposite approach. We're no longer with Harvest interested in helping individual startups. We're far more interested in helping the whole group of startups with the technology platform that they can all reuse. So for Harvest, we're basically saying, what are the key functionalities that you've got to build in your product roadmap? And there's a couple of big rocks out of all of them. There's an image library, so you can take all the pictures of the whatever fruit or vegetable you're picking. There's an artificial intelligence layer that turns those pictures over time into a, a robot arm instruction that can move the arm into the right place use an end effector and pick the fruit or vegetable off and then a tracker to move it around and something to instruct it to put that fruit or vegetable somewhere wherever the grower may want it. So that's a busy roadmap, right? And what we figured out is 
it so far looks like it's going to be one crop per robot, right? Very few startups have been able to do more than one harvested crop with a robot. And it looks like each startup's going to need 50 to $100 million in venture capital, capital of some sort, right? So you and I know this, Candace knows this, there's a couple hundred specialty crops. That's a lot. 50 to 100 million a robot. That's a lot. How do we reduce that cost so we can reduce the risk of the capital that's needed to come in, right? And we think you do that by building a tech stack on, uh, on what our colleague Mike Dentinger likes to call the 80-10-10 model. Um, our friend from Trimble, don't force the startup to build 100% of this intellectual property on their own and build the whole roadmap. Let's speed it up. Let's give them a set of pre-built off-the-shelf components that is 80% of the technology. Then 10% of their roadmap is customizing that technology. And 10% of it is brand new intellectual property. And the estimates are that if we build a platform and we build a baseline for all the stuff I just mentioned, we can save every startup eight to $12 million in R&D and development costs and two to four years of roadmap time. And people get really excited when you start talking about saving dozens to hundreds of startups, average of 10 million each to three years of development time, right? That would be hugely beneficial. So the reaction from Sacramento, the reaction from DC, the reaction from our partners in the Center for Innovation and Technology has been pretty positive that this platform approach is the right approach for Harvest. And as a result, we've had some early success around fundraising where we think this is going to be a joint effort between, and you and I always talk about it, get the order right, private, public partnership effort to go out there and get this platform built, private first, and then get it rolled out there to the startups so they can do their magic. So that's been the approach that we've spent the most time talking with folks about. And it's been, for the most part, I think pretty well, pretty well received and we're making good progress. Candice, you know, one of the reasons you were at the table at the beginning was there was a, an expectation and an interest on the part of uh, the agronomic side, so to speak, whether it's seed development, breeding, et cetera, that eventually that was going to be part of the mix. Do you have any observations how that evolved or are you still waiting on kind of, you know, would you think the industry, so to speak, would still be waiting on where the technology is going to take it? You know, do we need high rise broccoli, for instance? Do we need cauliflower, you know, the stem raised a little bit? What's, what's your take on all of that? My opinion is that both of these actions have to be done in parallel. So one doesn't come before the other. Everybody needs to be working on the solution together. And I know I've said this a million times, but it is true that if we wait on genetics, then we will be five to 10 years behind. And so both of these technologies of genetics and robotics need to be advancing together and there needs to be dialogue with the different partners. So the good news is from a genetic sort of perspective, those companies know that. So everybody's talking and working together. If you're somebody who's creating broccoli genetics, then you know the future is mechanical harvest. So the breeders are starting to make selections to do exactly that. And for sure, the, the same sort of thoughts are just bringing those conversations and partners together. Well, how has how the agronomic role uh, played into the project to date since you've started to running the trap line on it, so to speak. Well, no, it's a great topic, Dennis. And I probably should have mentioned it earlier when I share my optimism. This is definitely one of them because you and I were at a field trial. Well, actually, I'm not sure if you made this one, but but you've seen this stuff where the high-rise broccoli you mentioned was in a field. And you asked around and you said, okay, so how did it work? On Again, back to numbers for me, right? Wicked spreadsheet guy. Everything has got to boil down to the math. And it does. And it comes out very well, in fact. So you've got 400 boxes an hour of harvest production turning into six to 700 boxes an hour. That's a 60% lift in productivity for the grower. You've got the harvest crew getting paid the same piece rate, getting a 60% lift in pay. So if your harvest crew was making $20 an hour before, they're making 32 plus now. They like that. They request the fields where high-rise broccoli is at. Wouldn't you? And the company, in this case, Seminus is part of Bayer, gets a premium for their IP 
that they needed to, because Candace is right, that takes years to get out there in market. They need a premium price for the high-rise broccoli because it takes more R&D to invent it than it does just to keep making the traditional broccoli seeds. So I think there's a perfect example where genetics enables both the human harvester to get 60% more efficient and will enable whatever robot harvesters come along to be 60% more efficient because that 10 inch high stock and that nice tight head of broccoli, that makes a really easy visual target for human or machine to identify and pick. So I think genetics is a big one. Now you said it right. Can we have high rise cauliflower? Can we have high rise romaine? Can we have high rise, you know, pick your favorite crop. And I think the short version is we should even get more benefit because once you've got something like high rise broccoli, building the second, the third, the fourth crop to be like that hopefully gets easier and gets more familiar to the farming operators. So I think it can be a win on both sides from genetics. Well, and I think the other thing that you said is important, and it was interesting because we saw some of the uh, press reaction, which was generally very positive after Tulare, but you know, we're still kind of you know fighting that perception that we're replacing people. And that's just simply not the case. It's better working conditions, more pay, better ergonomics, that type of thing. And I think that's an important message, you know, and those are great economic numbers to report out around this issue. Yeah. And Dennis, I would throw one other nice example that we surfaced in the report and we, and we share often to your exact point about labor. The borough is a case study in how we think this evolves, right? So the borough is a little flatbed tractor that takes product, in this case, table grapes is the main product the team is working with, from the harvest crew back to the truck. And when we went to a field trial over at Reedley, one of our events a few months back, we saw it in action. And what was really great was same harvest crew that would always be there picking table grapes. But one of the members got taken off the harvest crew and got put onto the burrow crew. And they said, your job is to manage the burrow to make the whole team more effective, more efficient. And long story short, they figured out if they put three burrows and matched them up with the crew, they got 15 to 30% efficiency gain. So that's what they're doing now. But that harvest crew team member is now seen as a specialized skill set and yet is getting paid just like the rest of the harvest crew because they're enabling the harvest crew to work better. So we think robots helping people be more efficient is going to be a lot of the wave of the future. Again, I'm not saying autonomous tractors aren't cool. And I'm not saying John Deere announcing one at CES wasn't super cool. I'm just saying autonomy may be a little overrated because no farmer loses sleep at night for not having an autonomous tractor. They do lose sleep if they can't harvest the crop. No, good. (laughs) Excellent point. And I think the bro is such a great example, right, of now they have a product in the field that is a great asset to the farm and making the workers more efficient. And meanwhile, they're collecting all of this data and imagery to help lead us into future generations on how we can become even more efficient. So I think it's great. It's just nice to see the building blocks established and start to think about the future vision that will be coming after that as well. I think that's exciting too, to see how all the different technologies and imaging layers and stuff can help us for the next step. And we'll expand on that a little, a little bit and maybe just kind of educate our listeners a little bit. If they're not familiar, what's involved in a data library? How does that work in terms of the amount of information and images you have to collect by commodity? I mean, what are they looking for? Obviously, color, size, shape, that type of thing. But uh, how extensive a process is that to be ready to go from a harvesting standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question, Dennis. And it's a bigger investment than people know. So if you start with an image library where you need to be able to identify a crop versus not crop, so weeds and other things in the field, and then you say, well, crop that's ready to harvest versus not ready to harvest, right? So you've got visual cues, you've got surrounding cues, you've got temperature cues, soil cues, you've got all these variables that the computer software has to be able to say, okay, I see these pictures of these apples, these strawberries, these broccoli heads, and I need to convert that into an instruction set for a robot to drive out there and pick this thing, I mean, that's a lot. So what we see, Candace is exactly right, massive data sets emerging out of this. So we're working with Cal Poly, 
and Davis and Fresno State and a bunch of, of California universities and a bunch of grower commissions and associations on how can we put an image library together to, again, save the startups? Because what they'll tell you is it's six to nine months or more of a pretty good engineer's time to go out and put this image library together. You've got to go out and get images taken. You've got to put it into a database of some sort. You've got to then tag it with certain attributes and characteristics that can be searched on and programmed against. I mean, it's a big lift. And so the data storage required to store all these images is pretty massive. Just to give you one comparison, dogs and cats as an AI algorithm took 100 million images to separate out so you could identify dogs versus cats. And you weren't trying to touch or pick either one of them, just identify them, right? So now take the number of variables in animals and take that to fruits and vegetables and you get some idea of the complexity. And of course, the robot at the end of it has to then manipulate a food product and get it into a bin. So yes, Candace is right. The data sets off harvest robots will be massive. I actually think from an ag tech perspective, it will create a massive opportunity for some of the dashboard companies, as we call them, the field ends of the world, and some of the farm management tools to really come along and take all the data that's being acquired from the harvesting robot and do complementary stuff with it. So how that turns into a business model and how it evolves from an ag tech perspective remains to be seen. But there's no question that in other places, like cars, right? So in cars, it took us a while to get screens in all the cars, fancy sensors for all the voice commands, and then the software could come in. And now we've got apps in every car by the dozen, right? That took a while. We're at the same place now where cars were in about 2010, right? So think what the next 10 to 12 years will bring in terms of getting more robots, more weeding, more thinning, more harvesting done autom- you know, done automatically, done rope with robots, and what kind of data mining that's going to lead for the software side. I think they're going to come up with some pretty cool stuff in the next decade. Well, and it sounds like that description is a pretty uh, good setup for who's going to make this stuff, who's going to operate the equipment and service and answer those uh, 2 p.m. Saturday afternoon calls, it almost sounds like we're going to need a new kind of worker as part of the mix. Dennis couldn't agree more. And luckily, you are the guy on the case because we're halfway through a four-city tour on Next Gen Ag Worker and happily working with Karen Ross in the California Department of Ag because everybody realizes it. This is what's interesting. Yes, it's a grower problem. You know, Bruce Taylor, Tom Nunes, John Deere, Rico, they all need more ag tech workers, but so does John Deere right? To sell their equipment and work on it. So does RDO, the deer dealer, and all the rest of the dealers. And so do all of the ag tech startups and big companies, right? So as these companies scale to hundreds of robots, they're going to need lots of people to be able to talk to the robots, take care of the robots, manage the robots in the field and problem solve. Because the one other reality about ag is a significant portion of our acreage is not within 30 minutes of a major urban area. So folks have to drive a little to get out to these fields. And so the ability to self-diagnose in a field environment and solve those problems on site right now, instead of waiting for that service call and that truck to roll, that's a big win, especially if a harvest crew is relying on that automation, right? You don't want that crew idle. You want that thing fixed sooner the better. So I think the notion of two-year community colleges creating a lot of the workers that can get this stuff identified, solved, fixed, and working right now out in the fields, and four-year universities, the Cal Poly's, Fresno State's, Davis's of the world, being able to put combined discipline degrees together in business, finance, engineering, where the four-year graduates can build the ag tech companies, the two-year community colleges can build shorter programs to take care of and manage the ag tech. I think that, you know, you put a couple thousand workers with the right skill sets in the right place, and ag tech becomes an even bigger opportunity to help fill that gap. Because right now, these companies are short workers, big time, hundreds of workers short of ag tech workers. And we just need to nudge the community colleges a little bit more in a grower focused direction. I think that will really help push things in a good place. 
you know, I don't want to cut the conversation short on next gen talent, but we spent so much time talking about automation. Can we also, I just want to hear what else is going on as the VP of innovation? What else are you working on? Yeah, that's a fair question, Candace. It's not all harvest automation. That's exactly correct. So one of the things that Dennis has really been driving hard is food safety. And we all know that food safety is a big challenge for ag. And specifically, how do we not just test for some of these pathogens like E. coli, Listeria, Cyclospora? How do we actually remove them? So I think Dennis and his team of colleagues on this from the industry have really been focused on how can we get more testing done, but how can we get more fix done at scale? And they've done a nice job of, again, this is our role as WG Innovation is how do we get the startups, get the innovators to talk to the growers more? And those conversations are happening at a much larger scale than they were. And, you know, it's hard to predict how fast this stuff will happen. But I think the pot that Dennis is stirring is large. The folks that he's stirring it with are perfect. And um, I think we'll see some progress on food safety in the next couple of years. And we could sure use it because those are big challenges. We all know what an outbreak looks like. We all know the economic impact and the health impact that those can have. And um, we'd like to think we can make a dent in uh, shortening the time frame till we can get some of that stuff fixed on a more predictable basis. So food safety is a big one. You heard about next-gen ag worker, obviously. And then I would say the last one is building out Dennis's vision of a grower trial network into a set of grower trials that are kind of on a calendar, planned and predictable. And then really the last mile for me is the case study, because having been a startup, there are a few things stronger than a case study you develop with an actual customer. But one of the things that is stronger than a startup putting out a case study is a company like Western Growers that's not the startup putting out the case study. It has a layer of street cred that uh, the startup can never have. I've lived that and completely been there, done that. So I think we're going to ramp up both the field trial side of the exercise so that we have global field trials going on and then case studies. So there are more frequent write-ups on these field trials because that's going to scale things so that each grower doesn't have to do a hundred field trials. Because if we're all honest, there's just too many early stage startups for the average grower. They're just overwhelmed. There's no chance. They've got startup fatigue. So one of the things that helps solve startup fatigue is, well, what if we just give you case studies from other growers instead of forcing you to do every field trial yourself? So that's a big area of emphasis for us as well. No shortage of things to do. And Dennis, I heard your name on several of those. Well, and you know, and there's one more that we heard from uh, our friends at Canada today, and, and certainly we've been hearing it as we move around the state. And Candace, this is an area you're familiar with. The input world is going to continue to evolve and, and change, whether it's at the request of customers, whether it's ongoing um, regulation, um, that type of thing. There's no question we're going to enter an era of more new tools that we're going to have to look at. You know, it's going to be, here come the biologicals. And Candace, you lived in that world of, uh, you know, how do you get growers' attention on new products and get them to look at things and proof of concept and that sort of thing. But uh, it's another area where there's just simply going to be no choice, but to need to look at new things. For sure. Yeah, and I agreed. You can just, you see not just the conversation starting to evolve quickly, but there are so many other, think about ag sharks this year. How many different companies do we have coming in to present the work that they're doing on biologicals? And I think now the growers are starting to understand more about what the future of agriculture is going to look like here in California from a regulatory perspective. So it is emerging with, I think, a lot of energy and more trials taking place and trying to figure out really just how each of the different tools that the growers have access to, what the role of those tools are going to be on the farm. And I think that's really what we have to try to figure out. And the Grower Trial Network, again, figuring out, Dennis, are there other opportunities to, to be including different kinds of technologies in the mix of those trials? No, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that's becoming increasingly apparent, you know, and if you think back to the beginning of the ag tech era where everyone's excited, you know, you just throw the ball out and uh, 
you connect uh, smart uh, entrepreneurial talent with growers and rub those two sticks and you're going to have immediate answers. And in that era, it was, hey, I want to meet a grower. Just like ag tech was kind of the uh, phrase used for a pretty big bucket of a lot of different aspects of ag tech. Everybody wanted to meet a grower. And to your point, like, well, maybe you want to meet a grower, but you might want to meet the IT person. Or you may want to meet the person who's running the processing plant. But, you know, growers kind of became the catch-all for, yep, I want to meet growers. And, you know, and you do. And But I think the game is getting more customized, more focused. And I think if you listen to what Walt was talking about, you know, from a Western grower standpoint, we're intent on being more intentional around strategic objectives. But but we also want to be open to, hey, there can be some pretty interesting stuff out there that our members uh, or the, you know, the, the ag community writ large is going to be interested in. So we always like the idea of general discovery and panning for gold. But, you know, I think the uh, a lot of our activity has been focused on uh, being more intentional because we think some of these issues are now a race against time. And there can just be an evolution of what the new technologies and priorities may be. So be intentional, Dennis, stay focused, and then move on to the next subject. Oh, I knew there was a catch. Stay focused. There is, yes, yeah. <laughs> Listen, Dennis, oh, I need you it. to stay focused. Do, do we I have to be public to... on that direction? <laughs> no, 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 stay Candace, focused. no, no, Candace, we're going to, we're going to hit the ball back over the net because we're nearing the end of our time. And as Walt told you, you know, I'm always very excited that, uh, you're my partner. I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced you're the reason why folks do listen in, but you have some news and uh, we want to make sure our uh, folks who uh, listen to us. And I, and I do hear more and more, you know, I was listening to your podcast, so they need to know, you know, if they're listening to you, Candace, what are you up to and what are you doing? What the heck is going on? That's right. And you know what? Let me just tell you, I've been hearing more people telling me the same too. Yeah, no, I'm enjoying your podcast. Love it. I'm the new regional director for the Farmers Business Network in the Western United States. So you know that my heart belongs here in California and the Western U.S. agriculture. And so Farmers Business Network has developed an online platform. You can think about it as the Amazon of agriculture and really trying to, with the idea of putting the farmers first, and it is integrated into the culture. It is not just something that sounds fabulous rolling off of my tongue. But we want to help the growers to be more profitable and are looking for partnerships and expanding out the store on how growers can have this e-commerce that's focused on agriculture. So it'll be super exciting. It's going to be full of challenges, but there are so many wonderful people here in California and I couldn't be in a, you know, in a better environment to pull together the brain power and figure out how we can get this thing off the ground here. Well, Walt, you know, this is why I think Candace has always been a, a great partner with her enthusiasm. And I always smiled when she describes herself as a, a science geek, you know, because she loves science, but uh, she's clearly in the entrepreneurial game. She's, you know, in ag, we like to say you're in the deal, you know, from an entrepreneurial side, Candace, you're clearly in the deal. So it's great background and experience as we, uh, you know, get a chance to talk to our terrific guests such as Walt. Walt, any final words before we close? I know you've got some uh, work to do to, uh, keep building that private-public partnership approach. So uh, before we uh, wrap up, any any final thoughts from you? I do. You know, I'll close with a tease and I'll close with an event notice. The tease is on the next round of the Harvest Automation Report, we're going to be focused on three areas that we couldn't do the deep dive on for round one. Europe, which is ahead in a lot of categories. How are they doing and how are we doing at bringing their technology here? CEA, Controlled Environment Ag, big topic in ag these days. We're going to see about the impact that's having on harvest and automation. And then H2A, we've seen a 5X lift in H2A usage the last 15 years to over 275,000 H2A immigrant workers. What impact is that having? 
on harvest and automation. So we'll dive deep on those next year. And then I would call everyone's attention to Fresno because everyone needs to be in Fresno, October 18 to 20. We're doing Fury USA for the first time. This is a three-day conference on just ag tech, specialty crop robots. So if you are a bit of a harvest geek, raising my hand, and you want to spend some time on R&D, commercialization, and field demos out in Fresno in October, we would love to see you. So um, look for the website to be up on the event in the next couple of weeks. And we really want to gather everybody who's in this space to Fresno in October in person, because we've seen the impact of getting folks together in person. And we want to make October a, a nice launch point for a lot of good things to come. Now, now do tell everyone what FIRA is. It has nothing to do with soccer. It's not, you know, it's not soccer. <laughs> so you better, you better tell everyone what FIRA is. Well played. Yeah, no World Cup assignments off this call. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. FIRA is, it's actually part of GOFAR. It's, it's the French Robot Association is the short version. I'll, I'll, I won't even try and give you the full acronym. And they put on uh, events dedicated to ag tech already. World Fira is being their flagship event in Paris in December. We're going to complement World Fira with a regional version over in the USA. But in my opinion, it's going to be a pretty global event as well. We're going to get some Europeans coming over here because this one's just specialty crop. And um, so our friends in France are doing a great job of organizing this event with us based on what they've already done at World Fira. And um, it's basically just, uh, I think both acronyms are, are in short, French, French robots folks. And um, they do a fantastic job working with all the European robots. And I'll tell you, Dennis, you probably attended some of them as well. Their World Fira Conference, and, and we were sort of nudging in this direction, but they were already there. Every time you saw a startup on stage, you saw a grower next to him as a reality check. And you'll see a lot of that in Fira USA. When we have a startup on stage, we want the grower there to be a, a, both a reality check and a validator of the startup. So I think that's that's going to be fun to see all the startups on stage with some of their customers ready to talk about them. And if you don't have a customer you can bring with you, maybe you're not ready to be on stage. <laughs> well, T's in a challenge. So that's and a good check, Walt. That's right. Well, 2022 promises to be a busy year, and it's hard to believe we're almost finishing up the first quarter. So it's 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 going fast, and October will be here before you know it. So, Walt. Uh, Terrific to visit with you. And uh, and I really do hope, like Candace said, uh, you know, we've enjoyed hearing from folks. Hey, I was listening to your podcast. I think, uh, you know, I think the information you've imparted is really important for folks who are interested in the space and uh, and want to get involved because, you know, when you put out a global APB, I think people are going to respond. And uh, so that's a great opportunity for the industry. But uh, I think you've dropped some pretty good breadcrumbs along the way. Like, okay, well, if it's going to work for all of us, then uh, be, be thinking about this stuff. So Candace, any, any final thoughts from you? Just, well, it was so nice to talk to you. Your energy is contagious, my friend. And so keep going. Well, somebody should enjoy yeah, the conversation. I, I, apparently no one has to tell you to stay focused. You do that pretty good. So <laughs> <laughs> well, well done. We're glad, we're glad you're on this job because this is a big lift. So uh, thanks for uh, bringing us up to date with what you're up to. And I happen to know I will see you soon. So uh, exactly. but th- thanks for taking some time to join us. Candice, as always, a pleasure. Congratulations on uh, your new role. I expect to hear more about it one way or another, as does our audience. So we'll look forward to that. In the meantime, uh, you know, if you're willing, why don't we uh, plan on coming back soon with another episode? I'll be here, Dennis. Looking forward to it. Sounds good. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on Voices of the Valley. And uh, we will be back uh, soon with another episode of Voices of the Valley. Thanks for listening to the Voices of the Valley podcast, brought to you today by Western Growers Association, supporting producers that grow the best medicine in the world. Find out more at WGA.com.